I'm excited about the study that we're beginning and launching in the book of Acts. It's a fabulous, fabulous book. And I'd like to begin by reading the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. And I'm not actually going to teach on this text this morning uh, directly. We're going to pick that up next week. But I want to introduce the book by reading these first 11 verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. While they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Father, we thank you for the tremendous privilege it is for us to gather and to study your word and to fellowship, Lord. I don't know, I'm just, I look forward to Sunday so much, um, not just because of the, of the worship, I love that, it's not just because of the teaching, because even though I'm teaching, I'm learning too. But it's also because of the fellowship and the sweetness of the family that we have here in Christ. And it doesn't matter if somebody's here for the first time or they've been here for the whole time that this church has been in existence. It doesn't seem to matter at all because there's such a, a unity that your spirit brings and such a deep agape love for one another. And so God, I'm asking that every person here, man, woman, young person, child, that they would feel so loved and so encouraged and so built up through the fellowship of the saints this morning. And God, I pray that you would meet each one of us in a very wonderful way as we launch a brand new study in the wonderful book of Acts written by Luke. And so God, we wanna commit this time to you. I, I ask for your strength. I know that even though I've prepared that I'm not adequate, I'm not going to be able to accomplish your purpose unless Holy Spirit, you fill me and enable me and use me and that you take the words, the simple words that I shared this morning and that you make them live in the hearts of all of us. And so I'm asking for you to inspire this time and to bless it for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your children, and God, for the sake of your glory. And we ask all these things, thanking you in advance for your answer because you always are faithful to answer our prayers. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Most of you know that the book of Acts is actually a part of a two-volume series by, by Luke. Luke wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote this book that we're going to be looking at, the book of Acts. It picks up where the Gospels leave off. The Gospels take us through, of course, the, the birth of Christ, the, the uh, ministry of Christ, the teachings of Christ, his persecutions, his, his death, and then finally his resurrection. And the book of Acts picks up where the Gospels leave off. 
and it tells us about the ascension of Jesus Christ. It tells us about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that's going to be exciting to teach on. I can hardly wait for that one. And then it tells us all about the, the birth and the expansion and the growth of the ministry of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in Jerusalem, but all the way to Rome and then throughout the world. It's an exciting book. It's a book that is often called the Acts of the Apostles, but I don't actually believe that's very accurate because it, if you're going to call it the Acts of the Apostles, you have to say it's the Acts of some of the Apostles and some of the Acts of some of the Apostles because not everything that happened in the New Testament church is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And there's only really two primary characters from the apostles that are mentioned, and really only one. And that's Peter and the second, who I believe was an apostle, and I'll share why in the weeks to come. But, uh, but he's the second. So really just two people are the primary characters from a human standpoint in the book of Acts. So it's really not primarily the Acts of the Apostles. What I would suggest to you is a better, a better phrase or a better understanding of what Acts means is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I remember years ago when, uh, when I was studying this book, all of a sudden I just kept seeing, you know how as you read the Bible, different things pop out to you? Well, years ago, as I was reading this book, I, I realized, wow, the Holy Spirit gets a lot of playtime here. You know, his name keeps coming up over and over. His activities are recorded. The power with which these simple people are preaching the gospel and they have these phenomenal results of thousands coming to Christ uh, as they give the message. The Holy Spirit is really at work in this book. And so I would suggest to you that a better name for the book of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit in birthing the church, filling the believers, and expanding in these phenomenal ways the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. But whatever you want to call the book, most Christians are agreed, and I would say all Christians uh, are in agreement, that this is one of the most exciting books in the New Testament. One of the reasons that I love the book so much is it's kind of like a biography, or it's not an autobiography, but it's a biography. In some sense, it's almost an autobiography because Luke is, in, is a part of this scenario, this whole expansion of the ministry of the church. And one of the reasons I like to read Christian biographies is because I find them enormously inspiring. I love to read about the saints of the past and their commitments of faith and their willingness to step out and do great things for God at the risk of personal finances, uh, at the risk of even their personal uh, existence of their life. And so I find that I get really inspired by reading Christian biographies. And more than any other book in the New Testament, I kind of get that feel when I read through the book of Acts, is that we're reading a living document about an enormously powerful and vital time in church history, uh, and really, for that matter, in world history. It's so important that uh, John Calvin said that this particular book of Acts is like a vast treasure chest for the believer. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about it. He says it's the most lyrical of books. And this is his exhortation to the Christian. Live in that book. It's a tonic, the greatest tonic I know of in the realm of the spirit. And so I'm praying as we go through this book that you're going to get inspired. I pray that you will be willing to do whatever we learn, whatever it teaches, that we would put it into practice, that we would decide that we are available to God, not just during these services and during the teaching time, but that we're available to God when we leave this building and when we are in the community and when we're being a blessing and when we're sharing the gospel. And I'll share with you a little bit later, but I believe the book of Acts is, is, uh, brings a, a very awkward closure. Uh, when you read the end of the book, there's, it just kind of ends. 
And I think there's some reasons for that that I'll, I'll share with you later, but I think one of, the, one of the significant reasons is because God wants us to know that it's not done. It's not over. The chapters haven't all been completed. We're a part of that ongoing work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he uses people like us, simple people, to be able to proclaim his gospel. And so today what I want to do is that I want to take some time to introduce the book. I like to introduce books because I don't think we can fully appreciate the content of a book unless we have a little bit of a background understanding of what's happening uh, to the people who've written it, the recipients, etc. So I want to take some time this morning and present kind of a, a little bit of a, uh, of a technical background to the book. And I hope it doesn't prove to be boring, but an encouragement to you as we look at the things that God had to do to set up this great text of the book of Acts. The first thing I want to discuss briefly is the authorship. We know that the human author was Luke. His name, surprisingly, is only mentioned three times in the Bible. We have a reference to him in Colossians chapter 4, a reference in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and a reference in Philemon verse 24. But other than that, we only have references to him in, in uh, kind of vague ways. We don't have a lot of information about, about Luke. But what we do know about Luke is that he was a Gentile. And by the way, this makes him the only contributor to the Bible, to the New Testament Bible, who was a Gentile. He's also a physician. We know that from Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. And he was a very competent historian. We know from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that he lays out in very technical language the careful scrutiny that he's given to the things that happened during the ministry of Christ. And he says, after a very careful examination of all these things, I am going to present to you an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Sir William Ramsey, who is a famed archaeologist and historian himself, actually started his career trying to disprove the accuracy of Luke's writings, both the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. That was his whole objective, was to debunk Luke's writings. Well, he ended up coming to Christ because of Luke's writings, because he found out exactly how accurate Luke was as a historian. And this is his comment after summarizing his, his effort to debunk him and then coming to Christ and then the conclusion that he drew. Luke is a historian of the first rank not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed with a true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of all historians. It's an amazing thing that he's done, and God used him in a powerful way. The fourth thing that we know about Luke is that he was a frequent traveling companion with Paul. We find in the book of Acts, as well as in other texts of uh, Paul's writings, that Luke was, a, was not only a companion, but this guy was a fellow laborer with Paul. He got right in the mix. And what I like about this is that Luke is a physician. I mean, we know even from his technical writings in the way he presents material about Jesus' life and miracles that this guy really knew what he was talking about. But, you know, you think of a physician and you don't really think of a guy that's just really out there beating the pavement with Jesus. You know, you think, you know, well, I, I, I'm a little too important to do those things, so I, you guys do those things. I'm not a fisherman. I can't hang with those guys. I don't really fit in with those. Luke isn't that way. Luke is right in there with Jesus Christ doing ministry. He's right on the ground running hard or harder than anyone else uh, that we have in even the New Testament, uh, with the exception of Paul. And so he's Paul's companion, and uh, Paul picked him up 
pretty much in his second missionary journey in Troas, and, uh, and he left him in uh, Philippi in chapter 17, verse 1, and, and then Paul came back in Troas, and then we find in all the way through the end of the book where Paul is uh, arrested and put in prison, who's there with him? It's Luke. Nobody else is there, but Luke. Luke is with Paul, which brings me to a to my fourth point about Luke is that he was a faithful friend. You know, one of the things that, uh, that's a little distressing to read about Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4.11, the same is true, by the way, in Colossians chapter 4, where he basically summarizes, after all these years of ministry, I've got five guys that are still with me, five Jews in particular who have been reliable and have not left me but have been faithful friends. And in this passage in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, only Luke is with me. This is toward the end of his life. He's not, he's not going to be killed during this imprisonment, but later he would be. But who's there with him? It's Luke. Luke is the guy that hung there. Luke is the guy that, that when everyone else was going out the door, Luke was still there. Luke was a great comfort, a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, I, I know the Lord would have been with Paul even if Luke hadn't been there, but if you've ever felt alone, if you've ever been at a place, whether your own doing or the doing of others have felt abandoned, there's nothing quite like having a friend come in the door when everyone else is exiting. That's when you know when you have real friends. That's when you know that uh, when you've got something, a relationship that really counts. The Bible says in Proverbs 20 that many a man claims to have unfailing love, but who can find a faithful man? Who can find a faithful woman? I'm not talking about marriage covenant. I'm not talking about marital fidelity. I'm talking about just being a friend who is loyal and doesn't beat the streets and take off when you've done something silly or dumb or sinful or whatever, but they just keep hanging with you and keep loving you and keep encouraging you and keep blessing you, that's a faithful friend. As I, as I thought about these things, I thought, oh God, make me a man like that. You know, make me a man that just never quits, that never gives up, just keeps loving people. Doesn't matter whether they love me back, just keep loving, keep encouraging, keep blessing, keep praying for them. I want to be the kind of person that even when other people are leaving, I'm still there with people. Because I've been in places where I've done dumb, stupid things. And it blesses me so much that I've got people that still stay. You know, that not just love me. Just love me. And that's the kind of man that, that Luke was. I don't know what that does for women, because I'm, I'm not a woman. Uh, I hope that's obvious. But, but for, for a guy, when I think about being faithful and loyal like Luke, I think, man, I want to be like that. I want to be that kind of a man. And I, I pray that all of us in this church are people like that, that God would make us as faithful a friend as Luke was to Paul. Well, we know that he was the human author, but we also know that the divine author ultimately was God. We know that all scripture is God-breathed. It's all God-breathed and given by God for the benefit of the church. And so we know that from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we already know that, that though Luke was the human author, he was being inspired by God, but also by the Holy Spirit of God, because 2 Peter tells us that above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I like that, that whole sense of carried along. In fact, the Greek phrase means to be forcefully borne along. 
It's actually the same word that's used in Acts chapter 27 when Paul has a shipwreck. Remember that? As they're going to Rome, he's going to be arrested and put in prison. As they're going, the ship is just beaten for for like two weeks with this heavy storm. And they're, they're like, they can't do anything except just be pushed along by the wind. And that's the very same phrase, the very same Greek phrase that's used there that's used in, in Peter about how the, the, uh, the New Testament writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They had a part in it, but they couldn't control it. They weren't the determining factor of what was going to be in the Bible. It was God's Spirit that authored the book of the New Testament and as well this book of Acts. So we've discovered that the author is Luke, but ultimately God himself. Who were the recipients? Well, we know that the immediate recipient, the most obvious, is a man named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, is, it actually, his name means a friend of God. It's a compound phrase in the Greek, theos, which means God, and phileo, which is like brotherly love. And so we've got a guy whose name means a friend of God or a brotherly lover of God. And um, we also know that he was a Roman citizen. In fact, most scholars believe that he was in Rome where Paul was going to be on trial. We also know that he was probably a high-ranking government official because in Luke chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. That's a term of high regard, and it's the same term that was used of Festus and Felix, who were governors, Roman governors. And so more than likely, this man who's called a friend of God by name, not only was was a Roman citizen, lived in Rome, but he was a very high-ranking government official, and and we'll talk about this in a few moments, but it's quite likely that he had something to do with the presentation of the material at Paul's court hearing, and that this letter very well may be a preparation, a draft of information for Theophilus so that he might present a fair case uh, for Paul at Paul's hearing. But we also know that it's not just for Theophilus that this book is written, otherwise we wouldn't have it here. Most scholars believe even at the time that Luke wrote this book that he was fully intending to have this book published. Why? Well, for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of people who wanted an understanding of what happened with a first-hand perspective, with a first-hand eyewitness account. And so even to this day, I would suggest to you that this book was not written just to Theophilus, but it's written to us as a church. And I would say it's not just to us as a big church, but I would say that it's to you individually, that this book was recorded by Dr. Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to instruct us, to instruct you, to teach us, to teach you, to inspire us, and to inspire you to a more passionate walk with God in your life in Christ. So we know the author and we know the recipients. What about the purpose? Well, there's several purposes I want to go over briefly. The first is to give an orderly account of Christianity. And that's pretty obvious because that's what Paul says or or Luke says in his opening verses in Luke chapter 1. In fact, if you want to turn there, I want to read just the first four verses. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So it's quite likely that Theophilus was a believer and that he's already been taught these things, but 
but Luke was presenting to him an orderly account of the things that he very carefully investigated. In fact, in the Greek, it means that he scrutinized, like put under a microscope, all of these events to make sure that he was absolutely accurate about the information, the timelines, the dates, the names, the places, so that it would be a reliable account for someone like Theophilus, for someone like Sir William Ramsey, and for someone like us. And so the second reason that I have down for the purpose, besides to give an orderly account, is to verify the arrival of the Holy Spirit. This was the big promise that we talked about last week in, in uh, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's like the Holy Spirit dominates the upper room discourse of Jesus, one of the largest teaching segments that we have in the New Testament of Jesus' teaching. And it's dominated by the importance and ministry and coming of the Holy Spirit. And so Luke wonderfully, beautifully describes the arrival and indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women. The third purpose for the book is to explain the, dis the disciples' remarkable transformation from fearful disciples into fearless preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That would have been a question that a lot of people would have had, not knowing what exactly happened, not being in Jerusalem, being in Rome. How did it happen that these guys, that ran, didn't these guys run away? Weren't these the guys that were denying the Lord repeatedly? How is it that they now are preaching and bold as lions? And so the book of Acts describes how that occurred. The fourth thing is to document the birth and growth of the church. We read their sermons in the opening chapters of the book of Acts and thousands of people come to Christ. I mean, this is, you have to remember that this is Peter's very first sermon. I, I, I feel sorry for the people that heard my very first sermon. You know, it was, it, no, nobody got saved. Uh, you know, nobody got, you know, like left there on fire for Christ. It was just like, well, he tried, you know. Got to give the guy credit for getting up there. I'm not sure I could do that and look as bad as he did. You know, but on Peter's first outing, 3,000 people come to Christ. I mean, that, that, that would be the envy of any gospel preacher that had been, you know, doing it for years. But something happened to these men. They were, they were transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very thing that Jesus promised occurred. And so the church was born. And so we learn a great deal about the establishment, the work, the worship, the ministry, the organization of the New Testament church. But having said that, I want to share a couple of things with you briefly. Because so many people come to the book of Acts and they think to themselves as pastors and leaders, I want to find the secret of church growth. I want to find how we can do New Testament church today. I want to find out exactly how we can do church the way they did. And once they find out and they record it, they have a seminar and they have a church growth seminar. And hundreds of pastors flock and they pay their $199.95 to come and find out how they can too have a church of 5,000 or 10,000. And the one thing I, I, I'll tell you right up front is you're not going to find any of those hidden keys in the Bible with the five steps and the three programs and the six strategies on how to be a pastor of a mega church. Because what we find in the New Testament Gospels as well in the, as in the book of Acts is not once does the Holy Spirit ever do the same thing twice. Not once. And so you can't come to the same situation and, and as Jesus did and, and come to a blind man and pick up, you know, spit in the dirt and rub it in there and stick it in the guy's eyes and hope for the best and pray. It's not going to work. 
because God never does the same thing twice. So what's the point I'm trying to make? It's this, is that God is not looking for systems and programs and for us to examine the book of Acts to find the five hidden keys to church growth. What God is looking for is men and women who are on their face before God, prostrate, finding out exactly what he wants us to say and what he wants us to do in a very particular situation that will never occur again in the exact same manner. And what what we try to do in the church is we try to systematize it and we try to program it and we try to harness it so that we don't have to be on our face, so that we don't have to fast and pray, so that we don't have to look ridiculous before people or before God, so that we don't have to humble ourselves. You know, I, I've been to pastor's conferences. I've been to a lot of pastor's conferences. I've been to church growth pastor's conferences. I remember one up in New York and they, they had this mega church pastor that came through and the, I was the associate pastor and the pastor wanted me to go, so we went. And the whole thing was charts and flow charts and programs and strategies. And you know, the whole time we never prayed, not once, except for just to open the message and close the message. And at the end of it, guys were, there were two categories of guys, guys that were hyped up because they were gonna, they were gonna take the world by fire and the other guys that had been to these a few times before and left discouraged because they realized it, they, they weren't man enough for it. They couldn't do it. They, they just weren't adequate for it. Someday I'd like to, I wanna have a church growth seminar myself someday. And what I wanna do is that I wanna, I wanna make people pay nothing and I want him to come and I just want to gather for like three days and do nothing but fast and pray and be on our face before God and pray over every guy there and ask God to do something. I mean, can you imagine? Now, I tell you right away, nobody'd come. I, I, I can tell you right from the get-go, I'll get like three guys that'll come. Number one, because I'm not, I'm not anybody. So that really just, that eliminates a lot of guys that would want to come. And secondly, honestly, a lot of pastors and a lot of church leaders don't want to pray anymore. They want, give me, just tell me what to do. I actually worked with a pastor years ago who wasn't really that much into prayer. The guy was a worker bee. He, the guy, in fact, he said, I'm a worker bee. And this was his message to me after I'd been there for about two or three months. He says, Bob, I want you to pray and find out what God wants us to do. And you tell me what he said and I'll do it. And I'm not kidding. Those were his very words. And I was so blown away, I almost quit on the spot. And I probably should have. But I thought God sent me there. And, and God did a lot of work up in that church and it was good that we stayed. But, you know, there, there's a lot of that in the church. It's like, just give me the system. Give me the program. Give me something that I can put in my hand. I'll pay 200, I'll pay 500 bucks to hear some mega church pastor tell us the secrets. But the book of Acts doesn't have those secrets except one. And that's to be filled with the spirit, to preach the gospel, to love, to bear the fruit of the spirit. It's just real simple Christianity. That's what God is looking for. And so as we go through this, we're going to find that, that uh, this incredible growth happened without radio, it happened without television, it happened with se without seminars, it happened without even places to meet. It happened without buildings. And it happened because of the Spirit of God. And I want to encourage you, I believe God is interested in doing great things. But I don't believe it's going to happen because we've got the fancy program or we've got the, the nice building or even the nice property. It's going to happen because men and women are on their face before God. I want to, I want to live that way. I want to lead us as a church that way. I, don't want, I want to be the guy like Jehoshaphat. You, if you've been here any length of time, you know it's my favorite prayer in the whole Bible. Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. 
And when God finds men and women like that who are humble enough to say, I'm not leaning on a program, I'm not leaning on advice of other people, I'm coming to you and I'm saying, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? And then he speaks and then we act. And whether it produces enormous fruit or not, we'll be found faithful before God. There are a couple of things that I wanna mention as we look at the growth of the church and look through this book is that number one is that we don't have a full history of what happened in the church here. There are many churches that we know that were planted at the very same time as this record of the book of Acts and they're not even mentioned in the book of Acts. So it's not a complete record. It has, a very, it has distinct purposes and we're talking about those. I'm gonna talk about probably some of the most important ones in just a moment. The other thing I just wanna mention is that when I read the book of Acts for the f first few times, I was so blown away by the, by the intensity of ministry that's represented in those 28 chapters. I'd read through that whole book in a sitting or two, and I'd be like, wow, I want to live like that. You know, it's like healing and raising the dead and preaching the gospel and, you know, shipwrecks and all this stuff going on. I thought, my goodness, they live this. It was like every day something wild was happening, you know, until somebody told me this book covers 30 years. And I was like, oh, you know, so, so this got stretched out. Well, that really encouraged me because when I read it and I thought this all happened in like two weeks, I was overwhelmed. I wanted to live that way, but I thought, who can live this way, you know? But then I realized, hey, this happened over a period of time, but we don't have a record of everything that happened. So more happened over this period of time. But the point is, is that as you read this, don't get overwhelmed thinking, my goodness, I, I'd have to quit my job. I'd have to leave my spouse. I mean, who can live like this, this intensity? But God is calling us to live on the cutting edge of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I talked to you last week about this and I don't wanna rehearse it again except to say that I believe that the Christian life is the most exciting life that a man or woman can ever hope to live. But it happens when we're walking with God. It happens when we're filled with the Spirit. It happens when we have an attentive ear to the Spirit of God. It happens when we keep in step with the Holy Spirit and we are His servants. And that makes every conversation a divine appointment. That makes every phone call a divine experience. That makes every encounter with someone purposeful and meaningful. It means that when you see people this afternoon, God sent you there. When you run into somebody you haven't seen for a while, it's not just like, wow, that was cool. No, it's like, I, I'd ask people straight up, I, after we kind of chit-chat, vala'au a little bit, I say, okay, so why did God send me here? What is it that you need? How can I pray for you? How can I bless you? Because I don't believe in coincidence. So what do you need? How can I encourage you? And then all of a sudden, they'll just start sharing. We're in, you know, Safeway. We're in Longs. We're in wherever. And they just start un unfolding all this stuff that's going on. And it's, a, it's an incredible thing to live that kind of life because I just go from day to day and I don't do it perfectly. I'm growing, I'm learning. But as I walk through my day, I'm realizing, man, I'm just, I'm walking with God, you know? I mean, this is exciting to be able to walk with God and to know that he's using you in a miraculous way to partner with him in this incredible continuation of the book of Acts. And it's a sad thing when, and I've experienced it, so I know it's a sad thing when I or any Christian kind of ho-hums our way through the Christian life because it's just not that interesting anymore. We've been doing this for so long, heard that teaching, read that passage, done that before, kind of tired of the outreaches, don't really get too excited about Christian worship anymore, and all of a sudden, we, we kind of resort to all that's left, which is gossip and misery, you know? And sometimes that happens in the church. I don't think that happens very much in our church. I, I, I don't hear any of it, and I'm so, I wanna thank you for being vibrant Christians, for being people that are alive with Christ and with the Spirit. But the, uh, the, the work that God wants to do, even though we have a condensed uh, summary of it in the book of Acts, 
this ongoing work is a daily work in the life of a believer, but it's up to us. You know, we can either choose to not live in it and have our own agenda, or we can moment by moment be people of prayer and saying, what next? What's on your list? The fifth purpose for this book is to explain and justify the inclusion of the Gentiles in salvation. This was remarkable. For Theophilus all the way in Rome, he was probably asking a question like, how is it that Christianity is primarily Gentile when its roots are, are grounded in Judaism? How can that be? And so he gives a very complete explanation of the storyline, especially through Peter, about how the Gentiles were brought into the kingdom of God. And that wasn't new. That was all the way back to the promise of Abraham, but the Jews had, had isolated it and had put a claim on it just for themselves. No one else, just us. But Jesus and the Holy Spirit speak to the various leaders of the New Testament church and says, no, the, the Gentiles are included. And so he gives a very great explanation of that. Geographic, geographically from Jerusalem to Rome, theologically from Israel to the church. Although the uh, people of Israel are still a vibrant part of God's work all the way to the very end, to the, uh, to the coming of Christ. And racially from Jews to Gentiles. And so that's all laid out for us in the, in the, uh, in the book of Acts. The sixth reason for the book of Acts, also the purpose, is to bridge the gap between the Gospels and the Epistles. Imagine how confusing it would be to go from the Gospel of John, the last of the Gospels, to Paul's writings. There would be this huge thing like, what, where did this guy come from? Who's Paul? And, and how do these churches get? Who are all these churches? How did the church get born? How could it grow? How, how could it exponentially in one generation cover the entire globe of that known world at the time? How is that possible? The book of Acts answers all of those questions for Theophilus, but it also answers it for us. And the last purpose for the book of Acts is to present a defense for Paul and his apostleship, but also for his trial. Most people believe that this is a trial brief for Paul in an upcoming hearing where Theophilus has a, an integral role. He might even be the defense attorney for Paul. We don't know. But he had great influence. And so Luke is writing this book to present a case for the fact that, number one, that Paul's authority and apostleship come from God. But number two is that Paul is not a threat to Rome. And that thirdly, that Christianity is not a threat to Rome because although the, the Jews said that, uh, that they were trying to take over Rome, that was a lie. It was slander. And that all that Luke wanted to do was to build a kingdom of another world, nothing to do with the kingdom of this earth. And so he presents all of this material. And part of the reason we believe that that's the case is that when you get to the very end of the book, it just kind of ends. It doesn't get wrapped up. There's not a nice little bow. There's no summary statement, nothing. It just ends. And the reason is, is that Paul is still in prison. He's been in prison for almost two years at this time. And legally, when we get to the end of the book, and legally, by Roman law, you couldn't hold a prisoner for, for two years without giving him a trial. And so, in essence, he's saying, Theophilus, it's about time that you present this material. I'm giving you an accurate account of all of these things so that you can present a, a meaningful defense for the Apostle Paul in this trial. Evidently, it was effective enough that Paul was released. He wasn't uh, going to die uh, in, in, in that prison. He was actually under house arrest. But he wasn't going to die at that time. He would be martyred later, but not at that time. And so we find that uh, this book has enormous um, uh, purpose, uh, enormous value. It's vital not just for Paul at that time and his imprisonment. I mean, can you imagine how, how would you feel about somebody writing a defense treatise for you when you're in prison? Everybody else has left you and you got one guy that's scratching away writing 28% of the New Testament, by the way, is Luke in the book of Luke and Acts. And he's writing for your benefit. 
He leaves his practice for a while. He's up late at night. He's, he's researching and, and talking to people and getting information. And why is he doing it? For one guy, ultimately, at least from the human standpoint, one guy to get one guy out of prison. Talking about a friend. And yet we also are the beneficiaries of Luke's writings. There are a couple of things that I want to finish up with in terms of key verses and outline. The key verse is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And that's the promise of Jesus Christ when he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And so that's the key verse of the whole book. But we can also outline the book in several different ways. One of the ways that we can outline the book is just by personalities. We can look at two main characters. Peter comprises chapter 1 through uh, chapter 8, and Paul carries on from chapter 9 through chapter 28. So we've got two primary characters, and so we could outline the book in that fashion. Another way that we can outline the book that really ties in with the key verse is, um, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've got that in Jerusalem, we've got in all Judea and Samaria, and then we've got to the ends of the earth. And so when we talk about Jerusalem, uh, we find that chapters 1, verse 1 through 8, verse 3, cover that whole mission field of Jerusalem. And then we find that, that the mission expands in chapter 8, verse 4 through 1225, where they witness to Jerusalem and go on beyond that to Judea and Samaria. And so that whole section is covered. And then their witness to the ends of the earth takes place in chapter 13, verse 1 through 2831. And so we find that we can outline the book very much like that. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8, becomes kind of the outline for the entire book. And I think that's a very viable outline and one that we're going to be working with uh, during the course of, uh, of the teaching of this book. But there's another way to outline the book, and it really is, um, fits with Acts 1.8, but expands it a little bit more. Because in essence, you're going to discover as we go through this that there are like seven books within this book. There are seven books within the book of Acts. And the way that we know kind of the separation and closing of each chapter, if you want to look at it that way, or books, is that there's a summary mission statement of what God did through that particular phase of ministry. And so it's like a missionary writing a report, a monthly report, and reporting what happened. And so we have those, those missions progress reports of God's activity in seven, or actually six places in the book of Acts. And book one, if you're following along in your notes, is the birth of the church in Jerusalem. And that covers those verses, chapter 1 through 247. And it concludes with a first progress report uh, that kind of summarizes that particular book, the growth of the church, in Acts 247. And it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. That was a summary statement. And then they begin a new uh, aspect of the venture of what God was doing in book two, the growth of the church in Jerusalem. And that's covered in chapter three, verse one, through chapter six, verse seven. And this particular book concludes with the summary statement uh, in chapter six, verse seven. So the word of God spread. The numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, book three begins to take us into, uh, into uh, Samaria, and that's in chapter 6, verse 8, and concludes in chapter 9, verse 31, and this includes a bunch of non-apostle types. We've got Philip, we've got Stephen, and then we've got the introduction of Paul. And so more than all the other apostles combined, these three guys just set the world on fire by the work of the Spirit working through them as they preach the gospel. And this particular book concludes with another summary statement in Acts 9.31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear 
of the Lord. The fourth book begins in chapter 9, verse 32, and it deals with this whole inclusion of the Jews into the, into the family of God. And it ends with chapter 12, verse 24, with another summary statement. But the word of God continued to increase and to spread. The fifth book, beginning in chapter 12, verse 25, is Paul's first missionary journey. It begins with the anointing and the calling out by the Holy Spirit of Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel and go on the first missionary journey. And it concludes in Acts 16.5 with this statement. So the churches were strengthened and the faith and grew daily in numbers. Another missions report from Luke. And then we have the sixth book, the second missionary journey of Paul. And uh, like the other books, it concludes in 19.20 that uh, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And the final book in um, in Acts 19.21 through the end, which is 28.31, we have Paul's third missionary journey, his arrest and his imprisonment under house arrest for two years of his life. And that book begins with Paul's announcement to go to Rome and it ends with his imprisonment and arrest. And the reason it doesn't end is because he's not out of prison yet. And so we don't have a summary statement there. But it's just interesting how this book is organized. And so I, I want you to consider these things. And, and even as we um, go through the next few weeks, there are a couple of things that I want to encourage you to consider doing. Number one is I would really encourage you to consider reading through the book of Acts in a sitting or two. It doesn't take that long, but just set aside, you know, some of your time like on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon and, and just read through the book of Acts to get an overall feel of the movement of the book and where it's going and what it's doing. And then look for some of the things that we've talked about. You know, look for these summary statements. Look for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if, if you don't mark your Bible up, I'm telling you get, you, know, get one you can mark up. Throw away the gold leaf one and get one that you're willing to just scratch on, you know, and get some pins on that thing, uh, some markers, some highlighters, and underline, highlight all the times the Holy Spirit comes up, and you'll begin to realize that this book is about the acts of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing is read through the book second thing I want to encourage you highly to consider doing is to take these outlines and to go through the application questions either with your spouse or with a friend every week. You know, just, just set up a time. Do it with your kids if they're old enough. I mean, you know, obviously real young kids you can't do it with, but, but, but share some time with someone over this. I, you know, a lot of families have a very difficult time having quiet times regularly. They have a very difficult time, especially the men, leading their family in prayer having something to talk about. Guys, this is just a, a great little tool. I spend, I spend some time uh, developing these questions, and it's not that I'm crying about it if you don't, you know, use them, but they're, I think they're helpful. And you could use this as a platform to, uh, uh, you know, during the week, as maybe just take a question or a day. I mean, if you took a question a day, you'd have some quiet times for the week, and you can explore together uh, the application of the Word of God and, and really deepen your understanding of the books that we're going through. And the last thing I want to encourage you to do is to practice whatever you, whatever you read and study. And that's Jesus' whole point when he was teaching about the, the house built on a foundation of either sand or rock. Both houses went up. They had the structure there. It all looked good, but the foundations were very different. And the difference between the two was putting into practice what one heard and the one hearing it but not putting it into practice. That's the only difference. And so I'm encouraging you to read through the book. I'm encouraging you to use the application questions. And I'm encouraging you to, um, uh, to put into practice whatever you learn and discover as we go through this book. Now, what have you discovered today? Well, there are a couple things that you've discovered, hopefully. Number one is that the word that we have here is a gift from God. It's inspired by God himself, and it's specific for 
the times that they were written for, but it also has application to us. So that's one thing we learned. Another thing that we learned is that God is looking for faithful friends, not only for people in our lives, but he's also looking for people who are faithful to him. He's the one that called his friend. And we should be those that when, even if others leave, even if others give up on their walk with God, even if others, you know, abandon their Christianity, is that not only will God not abandon that person, but we need to be those men and women who, by God's grace and power, just stay. You know, we stick because God enables us to, but also we have a passion to be close to the Lord. And I think another thing that we can learn from all of this is that God cares about the lost. This book is all about reaching people. This is all about God's strategy for reaching the world. It's one by one by one by one. Not big programs. It's not big tent revivals. It's not TV and radio. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But God's strategy and methodology is that he takes one man, one woman, who's been transformed by the power of God, and that person, in gratitude and in obedience to God, takes that message to another person. There may be a couple of people here that have gotten saved through a Billy Graham crusade and you, or through TBN and you put your hand on the television and got prayed for. Nobody's going to admit to that. But that may have happened for a few of us, but most of us came to Christ because someone was a friend to us, took time with us, prayed with us, you know, walked with us through some difficulties in life, and we saw something different in their life. There are people in your life that are waiting for someone like that to come along. They're looking for the friendliest people on the planet. And that's what Christians are called to be. With the gospel, with the life-changing, life-transforming power of a message that can change a person from darkness to light, from isolation to being brought into the family of God, from being alone to being a part of something greater than they ever could have imagined, from boredom to a life that's the most exciting life on the face of the planet, walking with God and being available for his use. And so I want to encourage you this week to put, a, put any of these things into practice. Live for Christ. And I'm looking forward to next week. It's going to be a great chapter. Bring some friends. Invite some of your neighbors. And let them hear the word of God. You know, it's amazing what just the power of God's word going out can do for the life of someone that needs salvation. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And I thank you for this book. It's so powerful, so wonderful so life-changing. God, we, we thank you for Dr. Luke. We thank you for his accuracy, for his attention to detail. God, we thank you for his heart. We thank you for his friendship with Paul. We thank you for his faithful example. And God, we thank you for what you've done through simple people, without any programs, without any money, without resources, and they simply obeyed, and they simply depended on you, and they sought you in prayer and the world was changed. It was turned right side up in one generation because men and women were available. Make us men and women like that today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.